If you will, please take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be looking, not Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 2, I'm sorry. I have Ephesians chapter 5 on the brain. I've been reading and studying that quite a bit over the last several, several weeks. So Ephesians chapter 2, and if you're visiting today, we've been doing a series um, on Ephesians called The Believing Church in an Unbelieving World. And we've been looking at how, how does the church function as, how do we function as believers in a world that is unbelieving? And there are many of, uh, so many glorious truths in these passages. And we've been in Ephesians chapter 2 now for the past two weeks. This is our third and final week. And I, I keep telling folks that, um, please, I want you to go back and go through this passage this passage is a classic text in Christian theology in which you find everything in here from, from the doctrine of sin to the doctrine of grace. Um, th there's so much in here about who we are, um, both who we were and then who Christ made us. And the power of this text is found in the various contrasts. In fact, there's three major contrasts. I, I counted 11 in total, so if you're looking for a Bible study go through this passage and you'll find 11 of those in total, but I've only given us three. One is from death to life, and then um, the other one is children of wrath uh, to children of grace, and then we're going to look at the last one today having to do with our works as believers, and all of these uh, are found in there and so much more. But with that, let's go to our Lord. Uh, first of all, in reading this text, this is the inerrant, inspired word of God, and I commend it to your hearing. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God, before, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, 
indeed, this is your word, and these are your people. Thank you for the beautiful worship we have already experienced through the songs and through the reading of the liturgy. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are here, and we know you're here because we are told that wherever two or three are gathered together in your name, you are in the midst. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you might do the work that is necessary in our hearts and minds to enliven us, to cause us to love Christ more, and to cause us to follow Christ more. And so I pray your blessings upon us now, in Jesus' precious, holy name. Amen and amen. Um, like I said, this is the final uh, sort of lesson in this section, chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. And um, I want to end by talking about grace and the impact of grace on the life of the believer. It's not something that we think about. We don't understand, I think, how important grace is in the life of a Christian. We know and we hear a lot about grace, but why is grace so important? I'd like to give you a little anecdote I read about C.S. Lewis uh, some, year, uh, some time back. For those of you that don't know, C.S. Lewis is my favorite author. Um, I, I appreciate C.S. Lewis so much, I named my son after C.S. Lewis instead of after me. You know, he could have been named Dennis George Lewis II, but instead I named him Caden Seth Adler Lewis. Now, that's not, um, uh, that's not C.S. Lewis's name. His name was either, uh, was actually Clive Staples Lewis, but my wife vetoed me. And I think, uh, you know, rightly so. Imagine going around in today's public school with the name Clive Staples. I don't, I don't think he'd last very long. Um, but but I, I just absolutely love the writings of C.S. Lewis. And, and here's one of my favorite anecdotes about C.S. Lewis. And this is important, actually, to understanding this text. There was a group of people that got together and, uh, in England, and it was this conference, and they were talking about what makes Christianity unique. And they set apart all of these doctrines, and they, they said, is it the Christianity unique? And they all said, no, because other faiths have a resurrection story. And then they asked, well, is it the incarnation? And I said, no, 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 other faiths have the incarnation again. And, and they started going on and on. Is it, is it the Bible that makes Christianity unique? And they, they said no. And so they kept going on and on and on for hours. And then C.S. Lewis just stumbled into where they were. And they looked at him and he said, well, what is all this fuss about? Because they were debating what makes Christianity unique. And, and they looked at him and they said, well, well, we're trying to discern what makes Christianity unique. What, what makes Christianity uh, different from all other religions? And C.S. Lewis just looked at them and said, oh, that's easy. Grace. Grace. Lewis said there's nothing like grace in any other religion. The Buddhists have the Eightfold Path, the Hindu have the doctrine of karma, the Jews have uh, the covenant, the Muslims have the code of law, but there is nowhere else that has grace. And we looked at that last week, did we not? Look at verse number seven again. It says that we were saved so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward 
us who are Christians. In other words, it's grace that sets us apart. And if you notice, there are three times grace is mentioned in verse 1 through 10. The first one is mentioned in verse number 5 when it talks about our union with Christ, us being made alive with Christ. Uh, Paul is saying that's by grace. And then when Paul wants to talk about the kindness of God, how do we see the kindness of God? In verse number 7, he talks about the immeasurable riches of his grace. And now in verse number 10, he's talking about the effect of grace on the life of a believer. And if, and if I were to put the sermon today in, in just a succinct concept, I, I want to ask the question, what impact has grace had on your life if you're a believer? What is the effect of grace by faith? That's what he says in verse number 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. And verse number 10 then, which we will look at today, which is the meat of what we're going to talk about today, asks the simple question. If you've been saved by grace through faith, how does, how does that impact your life? What is the result of grace through faith in the life of the believer? That's the last thing I want to look at from this passage. And Paul mentions two things. The first one is we become God's workmanship. And the second one is that you walk in good works. That's what the impact is. First of all, we are God's workmanship. Now, I love this word workmanship. There are, many, uh, there are many words to describe the Christian in the Bible. One of them is the word Christian. Another one is the word beloved. Another one is the word saint. And the other one is the royal priesthood. But, but I love this word workmanship. Because the word workmanship that Paul uses here is the word poema. And it means, it's where we get our English word poem. A poem. Now, now, he's not just talking about any old poem, right? He's talking about a sophisticated piece of work, a work of art, in other words. Paul is saying something intrinsic about the believer. But before we get there, I want to focus not just on the work of art that Paul says we are, but I want to focus on the work of the artist. Notice, first of all, Paul says here, we are his workmanship. And I want you to circle the word his because Paul is saying something about God that's incredible to hear, uh, incredible. Paul is saying this, when God remade us in Christ, we became a unique work of art. Now you remember back in uh, the book of Genesis, it says in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that when God created us, that creation was good. In other words, that creation was fitted for the use that God intended. That's what good means. It means that it was fitted for the use that it was intended. But here in this passage, Paul says, what does a life look like when it's been remade by Christ through grace? Paul says it looks like a work of art. He's trying to describe something completely new. And what gets me is this shows the limit of language, right? How do you, how do you describe something that is wholly new and different. How do you decide, how do you describe something that's miraculous? How do you describe something that's glorious and majestic? What, what words do you use? I mean, look at them. It, the way we uh, sort of said it here is the word workmanship, but that doesn't get to it. That doesn't describe anything. I, I looked at a number of different translations and they all try to do something 
wonky with it. They say, well, we are a workmanship or, or we are a work or, or it describes us as something like a masterpiece or something made new or handiwork. But none of that does it. None of that gets to it. Because what Paul is saying here is that if you have been the recipient of God's grace by faith, you're something completely new. You're something that's been completely designed that only God can do. Nothing else can do it. I, if you walk into my house, there's, there's uh, you know, you walk through my front door and over to the right is a giant turtle. And, and you could probably guess what we call this giant turtle, right? Of course, Yertle the turtle. Those of you familiar with Dr. Seuss. And every time I walk in, I look at Yertle the turtle. And you know what strikes me? You can give me a piece of wood and you could teach me as much as you want about woodworking. And you know what I'll never be able to do? Design something like Yertle. You know, when I look at a tree, I just see a piece of wood. That's it. But there was an artist that looked at a tree and he saw something uniquely, uh, that he could uniquely design and fashion. And here's the first thing you need to understand about you and your salvation. When God looked at you, he created, he recreated you in such a way that only he could. He made you and he fashioned you into something that is wholly unique and wholly special. He, he made you into something that's completely beautiful. Jonathan Edwards, uh, a noted theologian, said it like this, the supreme mind on conversion, the spiritual life which is reached in the work of conversion is a far greater and more glorious effect than mere being and life. God's most stupendous creation is man-made alive. As the subject of Christ to creation, we are the ultimate workmanship, his masterwork. What is, what is uh, Jonathan Edwards saying here? He's saying something amazing. He's saying, look, Christian, yes, you've been made in the image of God. That's Genesis 1 and 2, and that's beautiful and amazing. But when you become a Christian something else happens. You are remade into something that's beautiful and amazing and fashioned by God for a particular use. Now, you might be sitting there and you said, Pastor Dennis, that great, that's great, but what is the practical application for that? And I want to give you three real quick. The first practical application is this. You undergo a profound character change when you are made new by Christ. Notice with me in verse number nine, Paul says that when you are a recipient of grace through faith, Paul says you realize that it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. What is he talking about but boasting? What, what is boasting and why do we do it? Why, why is it that we have this propensity to boast in our own self as a result of the work of Christ with us. Here's what boasting means. In the ancient Near East, when you would fight, when you would go to fight, you would line up in, in, a, in a sort of a, a row, and you would look at the enemy. And, and you knew in that moment that you were probably going to die. You know, you were probably going to get a, a sword slashed through you, that you're going to get a spare in you, or you're going to get some kind of... Uh, 
some kind of bow and arrow shot through you. And in that moment, you need something to psych you up. So what do you do? You say, oh, our, our king is the most glorious king. And everyone would say, yeah. And then, then we have the best weapons in the world. And you'd be like, yeah. And, and our men are the biggest, strongest men in the world. And everybody would be like, yeah. And they would run into battle because they knew that they needed to psych themselves up before they were horribly massacred, right? <laughs> that's, that's, that's what they were doing. They were boasting. Now, why, why do we boast? Why were they boasting? Well, they boasted because of their insecurities. They didn't really think that they were the best warriors. They didn't know that. Why, why were they boasting? They were boasting because of fear. So they were afraid to die. Why were they boasting? Because, because they, were, they were anxious that they weren't going to see their families again. And let me ask the question, why do you boast? Why, why are we so filled with pride? For the same reason. Why, why is it that we boast in ourselves? Why, why is it that we talk about ourselves so much and we put so much confidence in ourselves? Paul says it's a result of our insecurities, fears, and anxieties. That's why. But Paul says when, when we are made new by Christ, we don't boast in ourselves. We don't, we don't boast in any of our accomplishments. We don't boast in how smart we are. We don't boast in how much money we have. We don't boast in what our position is. We don't boast in our talents. We don't boast in any of that. Why? Because we've been made new. We're a new creation. We're something completely different from what we used to be. And that has nothing to do with ourselves. That's why our character changes. And by the way, notice the progression that Paul gives. Before we could actually perform good works, God has to change us in order that we perform the good works. In order for you and I to have a different character, we need to have a new nature. So Paul says, that's the first thing that changes. Our character is different. We're no longer people who look at ourselves and try to boast in ourselves. No, we instead boast in Christ. Our natures have been changed. The second thing that Paul says here is that we need to be changed in order that you and I can look and treat each other differently. It's the second reason. You know, I had a professor in, in college, he said something profound once. He said, you know, one of the reasons why uh, human beings are so mean and awful toward one another is because we, we don't understand that what we really hate about God is what we really hate about one another is that we hate God. In other words, we're created in the image of God, and because we can't harm God, we harm one another. And the only way that we can not harm one another is to have our natures completely change. It changes the way we treat one another. Let me give you an example. Husband, how you treat your wife matters. Listen, if you've been made new by Christ, that, effect, that affects how you treat your spouse, both husband and wife. 
Why is it that husband and wives yell at each other and, and get angry at one another and get upset at one another? Why? Because there's something broken with their nature. And Paul is saying here, if you've been changed by grace, if you've been made new by Christ, if you're this new artwork, this new beautiful thing, then you should, uh, you should act and be treated differently. The way we look at each other should be different. Not just that, Paul says, that, that when, when you and I are changed, we, we treat each other differently. Not just husband and wives, but, but, but relatives. We, we treat each other differently on our jobs. You could go on and on and on. There's a complete change in the way we treat one another. But the third thing that Paul indicates here through this understanding of workmanship is this. That whenever you're being made new by God, it comes at a cost. We're being shaped and molded by him. You know, this is one aspect of my Christianity. It took me a very long time to understand. I never understood why God had to allow me to suffer in order to sanctify me. I don't like suffering. I hate suffering. But if you are a work of art, God has to chip away certain things. He has to break away certain things in order for you to become that beautiful work of art. Uh, like I said, uh, take, take for instance, Yertle the turtle. At some point when he was being carved, they had to take off huge chunks. They, they, had to, they had to smooth out rough edges, and that's what God is doing to you in here today. Paul is saying that you are not an unfinished work of art. Yes, you're beautiful, you're amazing, because God has recreated you, but you're still unfinished. God still needs to chip away at you. And there's some of you inside you today, God is still chipping away at you. You're still being fashioned into his image. You're still being made his workmanship. And the question is, are you allowing him to do it or are you fighting against him? New Testament scholar N.T. Wright makes this comment. He says, when we are remade by our maker, every atom in our makeup is given new life and a new purpose. That's you. When, when God is in the process of shaping you and molding you, he's trying to make something completely new and it's glorious and amazing. And the question is, are you allowing him to do it or are you fighting against him? You're a unique work of art. Notice the second thing is that we walk in good works. Notice Paul says, for we are his workmanship. Then he says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying for us to perform good works, we need to be made new. Everything about us needs to be made new. Everything about us needs to be gloriously changed. And notice it's in Christ Jesus. Now, why is that the case? Think about the gospel for a moment. And think about when Christ died on the cross, what that accomplished for you. It accomplished something glorious. Ephesians 5 said it like this, that when Christ died on the cross for us, he died to present us as something splendid something glorious, something majestic, in order that you and I can be fitted for good works. That's the, that's the progression of the gospel. 
And I'm going to say something here, and, and, and this is not just me, but this is, this is standard understanding of Christian principles. Beloved, if you've been saved by Christ and there's no measurable change in your life through what Christ has done in you, then you are not a believer. And you might say, well, Pastor Dennis, that's a pretty bold thing to say. No, it's not. Notice what Paul is saying here. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Notice the change. Notice the progression. Paul says God makes you new in order so that you can do good works. Now, pause for a moment. Look back at chapter 2 and verse number 1. Paul says this, in the same way someone who's dead in trespasses and sins, we could look at their works and see them. They, they walk following the course of this world. They, they follow after uh, disobedience. They, they go out and, and fulfill the passions of our flesh. They carry out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. Paul says, if you could look at an unbeliever and see their unbeliever by their actions, isn't it also the case that you could look at a Christian and see that they're a Christian by their actions? That's the point that Paul is saying here, and that's a tough point to make. Because some people say, well, Pastor Dennis, I, I don't do all the things that Christians are called to do. I understand. But you should see some life in your life. When you look at your life, don't, don't you see God doing something new in you? Don't you see any signs of life? What is he doing? Write those things down because that's, an, that's evidence that you are made new in Christ. And isn't that what we see actually in the gospel? I, I want to give you some examples of this. Notice Paul. Paul experienced this. Paul was remade new, made completely new to be fitted for the works of God in his life. How do we see that? Well, first of all, Paul's life mission, according to the Bible, when we first meet Paul, his life mission was to put people in prison for serving God. Now, where is Paul? Paul is in prison serving Christ. Paul's life mission was spent breathing out threatenings, in other words, he spent his life telling people or, or threatening people for their belief in Christ. Now where is he? Completely turned around and telling people about Christ. That's a life that's been changed by the gospel. That's a life that's been radically changed by the gospel. I'll give you another one. And this one, especially if you go to covenant, you know this to be the case. There was a Scottish divine who was... Uh, at the time, not a Christian. And he proclaimed that a Christian, all a Christian needs to do is to be friendly and to be nice and to be kind to others, but they don't need to do much other. But this same Scottish divine, when he was converted, poured his energy into the church, the Scottish church, and his city around him and completely turned Glasgow upside down. And his name was Thomas Chalmers. If you're coming down, uh, if you're coming from Covenant down, you pass the Chalmers Center. Now listen to me, church, because this is important. God has transformed you. If you're a believer, you've been transformed by God. You've been completely redesigned 
for good works. And by the way, notice that the Bible says that God has prepared them. You don't even have to go out looking for them. So what, what about Thomas Chalmers? He understood this principle. In fact, one of his life verse is this passage right here in which he looked in his Bible and saw that God had already prepared all kinds of things that he can be doing in the here and now in his community. And, and we as the church are called to do the same things in every area of life. First of all, start in our homes. The best work that we could perform immediately is in your house by loving one another and serving one another. Then you start with your church by taking up the mantle and looking at what needs to be done in your church and doing it. Then you start with your community. Then you keep branching out. Because here's the thing, if you are born again by Christ, you have the power of the Holy Spirit coursing through you. Are you trying to tell me that if you have the power of the Holy Spirit coursing through you, all that you do with that Holy Spirit is sit down and do nothing? The answer to that question is no. The New Testament doesn't believe that. Paul didn't believe that, and we shouldn't believe that. We've been saved and fitted for a purpose. What is that purpose? You need to be asking yourself that question. You have so much you could accomplish for the kingdom of heaven that's already been prepared for you. Think about that word, what it means to have things prepared for you. You know, in a few weeks, we're going to, um, our community completely changes. Um, we have like thousands of kids descend on our area and knock on our doors to get candy. You know what none of those kids think? Well, I wonder how am I going to get candy? They know how they're going to get candy through me. And the thousands of people that live in my community. Why? Because the candy has been prepared for them. <laughs> that can go a lot of different ways, but take that in the best possible way. <laughs> right? It's been prepared for them. When my children come home, you know what they don't worry about? They don't worry about what they're going to eat. Why? Because daddy and mommy prepared for them a meal. There are all sorts of things the Bible says is prepared for you as a Christian. Let me ask you a question. Are you doing those things? Look, if you've been redeemed, if you've been made new, Paul says you are his workmanship. You're a beautiful piece of poetry, a, a haiku, or whatever it's called. You're, you're, you're a masterpiece, but you're not just a masterpiece for people to look at. That's what makes this word so difficult to translate. You are a masterpiece that's designed to do something. And the question is, are you doing it? This gets to the heart of Christian theology, and I'll end with this. You know, I, I told the, the folks in our Sunday school, one of the things at my heart, at the heart of why I became a pastor, why I still do what I do is this. As we look at the church today, the church is dying. You know, Brad stood up and Brad talked about how the Lord has blessed our community and he has, praise God for it. But I promise you the church is dying. People are walking away from the church, young people. I, I'm astonished that so many of you are in here because so many of your contemporaries are leaving the church. Right now the church universal is losing members. There are certain por portions of, of Christendom that I think are flourishing. And the reason why they're flourishing is this, because they stay on mission. 
The moment we, especially in the West, in the Western church, the moment we get complacent and what we give in to cultural Christianity, where we just come to church, hear good sermons, or we want to hear good sermons, or we want just to sit down and be comfortable and not be challenged in any way, that's the moment the church dies. I have four children. There's a number of other children inside here. I want to leave a church where they understand and know what their mission is. And that's why when I get up here, I don't, I don't hold back because, listen, the gospel is at stake. You might not go to this church, but whatever church you go to, hear me. When you go there, don't just sit down. You have the Holy Spirit in you. Get involved. Find a way to serve your local body. It's going to look different for all of us. I'm serving the local body now by preaching and teaching, but I do it in a number of different ways. And there are many of you inside here today. Take up the mantle and serve God and praise God for you. But I know there's a few of you inside here today. You're saying, Pastor Dennis, I don't know how to serve serve the Lord. Come and see me. I'll put you to work. Right? You know, our children sitting down sometimes, they, when I walk in, they immediately get up and try to find something to do because they know I'll put them to work, right? But why am I putting you to work? It's not just because I, I want to, like, give you something to do. No, I want to see the fullness of Christ in you. Let me say this. Any, any Christian that's not serving the Lord will dry up on the vine. I hear people say all the time, my Christianity is boring. I'm like, what? What do you mean your Christianity is boring? Look, I, I, I mean, you know, there's some of us inside here today, we can't wait to go home and get some rest. Why? Because we've been running and going constantly. Why? Because there's always something to do for the kingdom. You need to tell a Christian that understands this principle to rest because they're constantly looking for ways to serve God. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't have that, I don't have that mechanism in me, then pray that God gives you it. You've been made new. You have the Holy Spirit in you. Get out and show the world that. Show the world what, a gospel, what, what the work of grace in your heart and mind can do in and through you. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. Lord, um, I'm thankful that you made us new and that you gave us um, this unique work of art. You made us into a unique work of art, but it's for a purpose. Um, that we go out into the world and transformed our communities through this gospel. Lord, Lord, you know my heart. I'm not, I'm not trying to beat up on our people. I'm not, I'm not trying to make them feel guilty. Um, and I'm certainly not trying to fuss at them. That's not my intent. My intent just is to say, Father, and you know this, that something glorious has happened to us. And because that glorious thing has happened to us, it should us. And make that, make that the case, Lord. Make that the case. We thank you so much for your marvelous grace. We thank you so much for what you're doing in all of our lives. Just bless us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.